last class we were studying the section where sri ramakrishna is discussing about the concept of the shakti the shakti alone is the root of the universe that primal energy has two aspects vidya and avidya avidya deludes avidya conjures up woman and gold which casts the spell vidya begets devotion kindness wisdom and love which lead one to god so that's the thing which we were discussing in the last class that the biological evolution starts with ignorance and ends with wisdom so at the beginning because of the wrong association of the atman with the body mind complex we find that all the evolution which speaks of selfishness that everything is centered around the ego and that speaks of the woman and gold for our sustenance we need gold and for our transmission of our genes that the lust and gold so that's the idea of avidya why that happens because we want to continue as a physical being as we have wrongly identified ourselves with the psychophysical existence and from that that endeavor to continue as a psychophysical being that leads to that ignorance which conjures up woman and gold that casts the spell on us and when we realize that we are already perfect it's not that we have to gain perfection it's not that we have to gain eternity we are already that we somehow forgot about it we forgot about our real nature in the sanskrit they speak of chamikar nyaya chamikar means the necklace the lady is wearing the necklace and suddenly she feels the necklace is lost she is running hither and thither shouting that where is my necklace and suddenly someone points out wow what a nice person you are it's all the way it's always hanging around your neck it's there always in your neck and then she finds that it was somehow got covered with the cloth she was wearing the sari she was wearing so it was not visible and she thought it was lost and then she saw it was already there so this is the forgetfulness it is not something that we have really lost we somehow forgot about it and when we realize that we are that then our endeavor to continue in the psychophysical existence by wrongly identifying ourselves with that 
that endeavor stops. And that's what begets devotion, kindness, wisdom, love. All those qualities speaks of selflessness. That avidya speaks of selfishness and vidya speaks of selflessness. Because this idea of this limited self, the moment it falls off, it finds expression as kindness, as love, as devotion, as wisdom, where the one who, who, who is the object of my love, his importance is or her importance is so much that I start forgetting about myself. So all short of love, the real love speaks of selflessness. What we define as love, the word love has been polluted by the world. The word love is, which we mean is, it is just self-seeking. That by loving others, it gives me a good sensation, good feeling. That's why I love. It speaks of selfishness. As in Chaitanya Charitamrita, very nicely it has been defined that what is prema and what is karma. Atma rati karma, Krishna rati prema. When all your love is directed towards the Lord, you are not in any way bothered about your own pleasures, about your own material gains, about your own security. You go beyond the comfort zone, beyond the security zone. If it's need, if the need be, if the need be that for your love for the divine, you have to go, you have to come out of that. You are in no way bothered about it. So yeah, that love, just the way when the child is in danger, the mother doesn't think of her own comfort zone, of her own security zone. What to speak of danger? Throughout the day, 24 by 7, the child's interest becomes the mother's interest. In the present day world, it is changing. Yes, even in the mother's love, we find self-seeking. There are so many cases where we find that some of the books, and it's, very, it's beyond our comprehension. Someone gave me a book, just how to rear up the child. And the very second chapter or third chapter comes the problem when the moment they have the child, there's a staggering case of divorce after that. If they cannot take up the pressure that when the child comes, the self-seeking has become, has gone to such an extent that we have become even worse than the animals. Even in the animal kingdom, we find that the mother is ready to give the life of the child. But we that as a human civilization has got to such an extent, the self-seeking has got to such an extent that we have even become worse than the animals. That even for the sake of the child, we find that there's so many family breakages are happening. So that's not the thing which we are speaking as love. The real love speaks of selflessness, where you don't think of yourself, that your freedom is not freedom of the senses. As Swami Ramakrishnananda used to say again and again, freedom means freedom from the senses. Freedom doesn't mean freedom of the senses. So this too speaks of the avidya and the vidya, which Sri Ramakrishna was speaking of. The Shakti finds expression. First, it may find expression as avidya, but within the creation, it is being programmed that though for the time being, we may be just being devoured by the ignorance as if, but there is a way out. We can come out of it. The, it has been programmed in such a way. As in the last class, we are giving the example that the computer games, when you are playing the computer game for the first time, that as you go on playing higher and higher stages, 
the game may become very difficult. You may lose again and again. And you may have an idea that there is no way out as if. But suddenly you find as you develop the skills, there is a way out. And then you win the game. But the idea that the game has been programmed in such a way that though it is very difficult to win, but you can win. It is not impossible. They could have programmed in such a way that there is no way out. However, you may try, you may lose. Yes, but the programmer will never do that. Why? Because they know the joy of the game is after much difficulty to overcome the, all the hurdles. And that's how as if Shakti alone, the primal energy is playing with his creation. He has created this world, which is the world just like the computer's virtual reality, where we are all as if playing. We are a part of the matrix and there is a way out. And when we find that these qualities are finding expression through our life, the devotion, kindness, wisdom, love, know it for certain, we are on the way uh, to liberation, where Vidya Shakti, not the Avidya, the Vidya Shakti has taken hold of us. This Avidya must be propitiated. And that is the purpose of the rites of Shakti worship. In this worship, a woman is regarded as the representation of the Divine Mother. So even in the last class, we give an indication here. So this is the a unique aspect of the Vedanta, the Vedantic Sadhana. I won't say this Vedanta also. In Vedanta, we find renunciation is given more importance. In the later period, from Vedanta, the Tantra developed, where spiritual life doesn't entail that you have to renounce everything. Even while staying in the world, you can gradually develop detachment by changing your orientation. So the, after all, all the attachment is not in the physical level, it is in the mind. So if I can change the orientation of the mind, I can get rid of the attachment. So what, why that woman is regarded as the representation of the Divine Mother? From the subjective point of view, we find that we, by default, by default, we have been created in such a way that the opposite sex will attract each other. It's obvious, it's very natural because there, the purpose of creation behind that is that, that it should be there. By default, it is there. But what's the way out that if we have to go beyond the impulses to really get develop a sense of detachment, one thing is run away from the circumstances. The other is try to change the orientation. Just see that, that what's the most pure relationship we find of all the human relationships is that of the child and the mother. It's a very pure relation. So it is pure love where there is no tinge of lust there. It is a pure love. So why not see the representation of the Divine Mother in all the these representations of Shakti on all women. So that can lead to a spiritual evolution even when we are staying in the world because your orientation has changed. So that's the idea behind all the Tantra worship. 
that see the mother in each and every form of the woman. The avidya must be propitiated, and that is the purpose of the rites of Shakti worship. In this worship, a woman is regarded as a representation of the divine mother. So, by changing the orientation, what we are doing, we are designing a new neural pathway, which enables us to come out of the groove of the default mode. So, you're creating a new. That's they say that in our present neurology, they say the neurons that fires together wires together. So that's the way the new. That's that's the basic idea behind neuroplasticity. That if you can associate an idea with your perception, in time they will wire up. That whenever I see a woman, I try to see the divine mother in her. So this is what is happening. That with that perception, your new idea, this idea, this is getting wired gradually. But as you are trying to fire the neurons, it to certain extent it is within our control. That I am trying to. constantly try to see the divine mother in each and every woman so the perception gets wired up with your conception and in time your total orientation of the mind changes so that's the idea behind the shakti worship the devotee assumes various attitudes towards shakti in order to propitiate her the attitude of a handmaid a hero or a child so what are the three attitudes which is which uh, uh, the scripture speaks of the attitude of a handmaid sakhi bhava means you are the handmaid of the divine mother so that way what happens that even if you are a male you are thinking yourself as the female the handmaid so that way you go beyond the concept of gender and not only that just as in the bhakti shastra we find that as sakha when you try to relate as friend to the divine your fear factor falls off the where there is fear there cannot be love in real love there cannot be fear so the handmaid is almost similar to that as you are the sakhi the friend of the mother but you are also of feminine she is also feminine then the fear factor is not there and you transcend the idea of the gender so that's one of the attitude child we of course understand we think of the woman as the mother and i am the child the hero hero is the attitude of the husband towards the wife this is also one of the spiritual practices one of the path in the spiritual practices you may say how why very interesting that here also we find is a it, it is the concept of sublimation that all cannot think of renunciation the most the majority will have to that we are being built in such a way we have to go through the so called family life now when you are entering to the marriage when if the groom thinks the bride as a representation of the shakti not only that 
it's not only that the groom has to think the bride is the representative of the Shakti. Even the bride thinks the groom is the Shiva. So what happens? You are sublimating that relation. That relationship is there. But the respect factor comes. You're trying to see the divine in the other person. So the relation gets sanctified. It gets sublimated. In Tantra Shastra, all the sadhanas, the idea of sublimation comes from the concept called Atmavat Devasevanam. Atmavat Devasevanam. What is that? That whatever you like, whatever are your inclination, instead of going outright to enjoy that, offer it to the divine. First offer it to the divine and then you have it as a consecrated uh, prasadam. It's a consecrated offering. And what happens, you are still enjoying the thing, but somehow the devotional factor has started entering into it. To give an example, that for the, when the summer season comes, the, it's the time for the mangoes to come and the first mangoes you find in the market. You go, you go for shopping and you find, you buy the mangoes, and just immediately I can have it. There is no harm in it. But what a devotee will do, he will bring. He also likes the mango. That's why he bought it. But first he will offer it to the divine. And then have it as the consecrated food. What happens? He's still enjoying the thing he likes. But the devotional factors enter into it. That it has been offered to the divine. It is consecrated. This is the idea called Atmavat. Deva Sevaram. Whatever you like, with that, all those things, you do the seva to the divine. You will find if you go to all these old temples, if you go to Jagannath temple, from the morning till evening, you will find that Jagannath Mahaprabhu is being served the way any other human being is served. In the morning, they will give the neem, uh, the in the olden days, uh, the stem of the neem plant was used for brushing the teeth. They used to use that. So you will find that they have given this uh, the neem, the stem of the neem. They will offer water and other things for washing his fish for ablutions. There is time for taking ba- taking shower. Everything, just like an, the, the food is offered, elaborate food is offered. That again comes as prasadam. What's the idea? Atmavat Deva Sevana. Many may say that those who see it superfluously, they say, is God really a person of flesh and bones that you're treating him that way? The idea is not that. God is beyond that, beyond all those things. But as a human being, I find that one of the very wonderful way, nice way to sublimate my emotions, that I, instead of forcefully trying to get rid of it, I take the help of it in such a way that instead of binding me, it gradually helps me to grow devotion. So instead of subjugation, you are sublimating them by bringing the devotional factor into it. So the same thing happens here, that most of the people have a natural inclination for family life. Okay, enter into it. When you're in, that's why we have the griha pravesh. You have built your house. 
straight without instead of entering into it straight they they are entering into the house and start living first you have a house warming ceremony what's meant for that what's what's the actual uh, idea behind it the same thing it's not my house is the house of the divine i offer this house to him and i just stay stay there as the caretaker but the house is the house of the divine so yeah it's the same thing you are still doing you're staying in the house you're living with the family the wife is a representation of the shakti the wife also thinks my husband is a representation of the shiva similar life is going on but because of that type of attitude we find that there is the mutual respect without respect there cannot be love this respect has to be there in real love that mutual respect by seeing the inner core of each and every being that if god has become the entire creation he is there in the wife he is there in the husband why not see the lord in the wife in the husband so that's the idea behind the hero worship that that if i think that the divine is has taken the form of the shakti of my wife then you will find it is helping you in your spiritual life what's the basic idea behind it that it is not something is it's not a license that religious this all these prescriptions doesn't give you license to enjoy the sensory pleasures of world it's not license for transgression it's reaching out to those who are extremely attached and raise them up in devotion if i say that in spiritual life nothing can happen without renunciation at last i will find that the spiritual world is beyond the scope for the majority of the human kind they have nothing to do with spirituality they remain totally out of it to for allow the spirituality to permeate the entire human civilization it has to have some avenues by which everyone can relate to the spiritual life so it is if you if we find that if you find that you have developed sufficient detachment renunciation of course there is no need to have that attitude of the hero you can go with the other the attitude of a child or just you can have a detachment and be absorbed in samadhi you need not enter into the family life at all but those who have attachment is there no way for them way out for them will you say that for them there is no uh, scope for any spiritual practice so the sp- that spiritual practice is is really effective which can prescribe for all there should be some prescription for all it's not just for the mere few so it's it speaks a lot when you have a system where there is no scope for everyone to develop you find a huge percentage of the population is frustrated and that leads to this all those criminal activities when a person finds that he has been left out as if boycotted by the society thinking he is of or she is of no use that makes them desperate they can go for anything so in 
uh, that, that's why we spoke that in Tantra we find that many will be uh, criticizing the uh, this sacrifice of animals in front of the deity. Again, it's not a license for sensitive enjoyment. If you have developed sufficient detachment, you need not go for that. It's not that all have to just offer the animal a sacrifice in front of the deity and have it as the consecrated food. It's not for all. There are a few who are these meat eaters. They cannot think their life without resorting to this eating meat or this non-veg food. Their nature is tamasic. Then is spirituality not for them? You will find tantra. Tantra in a way has what what is say pervaded the, all the sections of the society by coming down to that person by saying, you yeah, well, if you want to really have meat, you can do it. How? Offer it to the divine. And then you may say, bah, it's a nice thing. You will see that actually the offering of animals in front of the divine doesn't speak of license, it speaks of restriction. In our scriptures, they say only on particular days. It's not that every day you can offer anyone a sacrifice to the deity. It's only on particular auspicious days that sacrifice can happen. And then only particular specific animals can be sacrificed. Not all. You will find in the present day, the entire flora fauna has been disturbed by human beings greed resorting to just they are going to have the meat of each and everything they leave out nothing it's the cause of our uh, this viral infections that's uh, one part of it and apart from that it is totally uh, uh, demolishing the ecological balance i was in the northeast india in cherapunji i saw that how that total, uh, what you say, that if there is no restriction in what you eat, how means extensively the ecological balance is disturbed. If you go to Cherapunji, you won't see a single bird because uh, Cherapunji has the highest rainfall in the world, but it is a terrain, mountainous terrain. So because of the heavy rainfall, what happens? The, as it is a slope, all the soil gets eroded. It is washed away. So it is extremely unfertile land. Just see the paradox, the highest rainfall, but land is not fertile because the soil is washed away. It's a slopey terrain. And as there is not sufficient vegetation, naturally the population there resorts to meat eating. They try to get whatever they find. In any bird, if they find, they will just, uh, they will, uh, with a bow and arrow or somehow they will shoot it and just uh, anything, they get some, some log or some dry leaves, they will burn, they will roast it and eat it. As a result, there's not, not a single bird also in, in that place. So now you will find that the restriction comes here in the Vedic sacrifices, in even in Tantra, it is mentioned, specifically mentioned, what are the animals you can offer? Not everything you can offer. And not every day, particular day. 
and you cannot have meat without offering it to the divine. You have to offer. When the British came to India, very interesting. Even now you will find, if you go to a, a Hindu meats the selling shop. So now when the British came, uh, this meat shop was everywhere. Previously, it was, it was only in the temple after offering, they used to have meat. Now, when the British came naturally, this, the total culture, there was a total, uh, this, this transformation of the social structure. Meat shop was everywhere. But after opening the meat shop, they found that, that those are the, the shopkeepers found the people still tend to have meat only when it is offered to the goddess. So even now you will find if you go to any meat selling shop, still what they do as it is now not an offered thing, what they do at least they will keep a picture of the goddess, the divine in the meat shop to have an idea that yes, that there is a photo and we as if uh, offer it to the, we sacrifice in front of that deity and then the people somehow feel like buying. So what's the idea? There was in those days before the invasions, the, this idea was quite prevailing in the society that all didn't take meat. The Brahmins, they, they were sattvic nature. It's only those who are hardworking, the labor class, they naturally resort to taking meat. But for them also, this restriction was there. That after offering only on specific days, you can have meat. It's a restriction. How it's a restriction? In the modern society, it is not visible. Why all these sacrifices are so much uh, criticized? Because it was done in the in open, in front of the deity, all can see. Now go to the slaughterhouse. The way the animals are killed, the treated every day, millions. And then you will find that instead of saying that you cannot uh, kill animals at all, they gave, yes, okay. As you have a tendency, if you force a people, force the, this population the, to abstinence, know it for certain, hidingly they will do it. When you try to stop this drug addiction, the drug trafficking starts, you cannot force. It will happen illegal way. So you have to find a way out by which you can gradually sublimate all those tendencies. And the Tantra was a wonderful way of that, that all the human impulses were okay. If you, that's why they have this three bhava, Pashu bhava, Manav bhava, Deva bhava. That if you have, if anyone has a Pashu bhava, you need not say that religion is not for you. Still it is there. But at the same time, Deva bhava person, the person who is already established, in this detachment, he need not have to come down to this level. Well, he can practice his spirituality without resorting to all these practices. It was not something compulsory for all. It was for those who are yet to develop those detachment. How it can be developed? Gradually. Gradually by associating your impulses with some sublime ideas. And then you will find the devotion is growing and as the devotion grows, the other impulses gradually starts sublimating. It starts uh, get, getting attenuated. Its effect is not as intense as it used to be. And that's how gradually you develop 
this uh, detachment. So now you will understand that these practices were very, very scientific. It has to do with our psychology. Even if you go uh, to the rehabilitation camp where the drug addicts are, not the very first, it is not that on the very first day they ask them to abstain from drugs. No. Because they know that, that there will be a withdrawal effect. You cannot stop it immediately. They also are given this the drugs. They slowly reduce the dosage. They slowly reduce the dosage and gradually try to help them in developing some other interests so that they can divert their mind in all those things and gradually they reduce the dosage. The same thing is in the Shakti worship. The same thing that you cannot forcefully just abstain in the very first day because the mind has its this impulse. So gradually by changing the orientation and gradually you're abstaining, gradually. And it, if really, if anyone takes this practice as a license for enjoying the world, there will be degradation. It is your choice. But they have been actually prescribed not for that. If I misuse it, anything can be misused. Of course, that will lead to degradation. But if someone really humbly feels that I feel that the spiritual life is something which is desirable, but at present, my intense desire doesn't allow me that. For them, the scripture is prescribing this path. But gradually, by changing your orientation, by trying to see the divine everywhere, you can come out of your impulses by sublimating them. So the, this idea of Atmavad Deva Sevanam is the basic principle for all the sublimations, which has been spoken of in the Tantra Shastra. So that's why there's the three things he has been spoken of. Now the next thing which Sri Ramakrishna is saying, the worship of Shakti is extremely difficult. It is no joke. Means when he is saying the worship of Shakti, of course, here he is indicating that specific worship of Shakti, that is as a Virabhava. It is extremely difficult. It's no joke. And now he's saying that for him, as he was, just you will find that it is not something which you have to practice. If you don't have that type of strong impulse, you can simply get rid of it. You can simply just uh, try to practice the other bhavas. You need not have to practice the Veera Bhava, the hero worship. Since Ramakrishna's words certifies to that, I passed two years as a handmaid and companion of the Divine Mother. But my natural attitude has always been that of a child towards his mother. So this Shakti, this as Veera Bhava, he never practiced. It was not required because he never had, uh, there was no question of the strong impulse in him. So what, just as a handmaid or companion of the Divine Mother, he has, did spend some time and the natural attitude has always been like of a child towards the mother. There's a very pure form of relation. Women are, all of them, the veritable images of Shakti. Now that the Virabhava, what's the practice in all the marriage ceremony, the Tantra is pervading the entire civilization. Uh, it's not just that uh, if there's a few people uh, who profess to practice Tantra are the uh, one who are practicing Tantra. Knowingly, unknowingly, the entire India 
the entire so-called the Hindu culture is practicing Tantra. That you will find out that in the Northwest India, the bride holds a knife in her hand at the time of marriage. In Bengal, a nut cutter. So just see, many of us, many of the people, many of the, these people of the various cultures, they don't know why they do it. Sri Ramakrishna is indicating the, the, the significance of it. So it's again a part of Tantra that why you will find that the groom is always holding something sharp, either it be nut cutter or it be the, this is the knife. So the meaning is that the bridegroom with the help of the bride, who is the embodiment of the divine power, will sever the bondage of illusion. So just see the, how the Tantra has entered all the cultures. This is the heroic attitude. This is the Virabhava. So everyone is practicing Virabhava. If they know the real significance of it, then the entire life, the entire life becomes a spiritual practice. It's a 24 by 7 spiritual practice. You need not have to compartmentalize your life by saying that only in the morning for some time when I go and I'm in my shrine, I'm doing my meditation and doing my worship. That's the time I'm spiritual. Rest of the time I'm worldly. No. By changing the attitude, the life becomes a 24 by 7 spiritual practice. So this is the heroic worship. You have just changed the attitude. I never worship the Divine Mother that way. My attitude toward her is that of a child towards its mother. Just see, if you read the gospel within the lines, how nicely the scripture gets revealed. So it speaks that it is not something which everyone has to practice. It's not a license for enjoyment. It's just a way out for those who have very strong impulses. For them also a path has been prescribed by holding onto which you can still progress in spiritual life. So that's what is being indicated by these words of Ramakrishna. The bride is the very embodiment of Shakti. Haven't you noticed at the marriage ceremony how the groom sits behind like an idiot, but the bride, she is bold. So that's Sri Ramakrishna's funny way of observation that uh, the bride seems to be quite as bold and is a groom who sits behind like an idiot. After attaining God, one forgets his external splendor, the glories of his creation. One doesn't think of God's glories after one has seen him. The devotee, once immersed in God's bliss, doesn't calculate any more about outer things. So what's Sri Ramakrishna speaking of? So in those days, in Brahma Samaj, that the Brahma, this Brahma movement was very popular in those days. So in the Brahma Samaj prayers, we find that there's to be a lot of description of the God's splendor. Oh God, you have created the world. So these beautiful mountains, beautiful rivers. It's not something uh, which, we sh which shouldn't be encouraged. It is good. But it can never really lead to intense spiritual practice. It helps one spiritually by defying the creation. You see the God's hand everywhere. But as long as you are relating to the creation as God's splendor, there cannot be an intimacy 
with God. If you think the object of your love is something great, he is extremely rich, powerful, you cannot relate to him. Uh, just the way a friend relates to a friend. You have to get rid of all those. When Just to say that a uh, the the judge, the chief justice is a powerful man when he is in the courtroom sitting there. But when he comes back to home, his son, his small child, doesn't think him as the, the chief justice of the, the, the of the court, Supreme Court. He takes him as the father. All those adjectives will create a distance. And the father also knows that when I am home, all those objectives has to for all those uh, so-called uh, this attributes has to fall off. In love, in real love, those attributes becomes uh, doesn't allow us to be intimate. So that way, when if you really want to progress in spiritual life, the God has to be as if. Uh, this all the splendors of God has to be forgotten. You have to think of God as something your own. The more you think of splendor, you cannot relate to him intimately. To have an idea what this of this word, there's a nice story in the Bhagavatam, very nice story. That once Narada, he always used to think that there is no one greater in devotion than him. So and he wanted to hear these words from Krishna. See, he asked Krishna, so who, is the, who is your greatest devotee? He was sure as if the, he will say that it's you. But Krishna just uh, told that it is the gopis, the gopis of Vrindavan. Now Narada was not convinced. He told, how come? And then Krishna to uh, just explain that how the gopi's devotion is a real devotion. Suddenly he feigned that he has a headache. And he told us, for my headache, what I need, you know, that anyone who can give the dust of his feet, and I rub that dust of his feet on my head, I can get rid of my headache. Uh, can you give? Immediately Narada says, no, 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 how can I? It's impossible. You're the Lord. How can I just give the dust of my feet? Then Lakshmi uh, and the means she, when Narada asks Lakshmi, thinking that uh, she may agree, no one agreed because everyone had the idea of the splendor of the divinity. But when they went to the gopis, all the gopis, uh, they, when they, they heard that Krishna is having a headache, they were extremely concerned. And then Narada told that there is a way out, there is a prescription. What is the prescription? That the dust of the feet of anyone, if he rubs, it will be over. And all the gopis, then they say, take all the dust. Means they, they were just trampling over the ground. They told, how much dust do you want? You take all this dust and go and rub it on Krishna's head. So just see that this is a very simple story. But what it speaks of, as long as you're speaking of the thinking of the Lord's splendor, that the question of uh, this transgression comes, oh, he's such a great, 
I have to maintain some decorum. I cannot just break that. But when that all the splendors has fallen off, you can relate to him as your as a very intimate relation, as a very intimate relation. Then all the splendors you are not thinking of, and then your love can really become very, very intense. So as long as we are thinking of the splendor, there cannot be true love. It is not bad, but it cannot help in having supreme devotion, parabhakti. So that's why after attaining God, one forgets his external splendor. When the real devotion comes, the more the devotion, the more the splendor falls off. The glories of his creation. One doesn't think of God's glories after one has seen him. The devotee, once immersed in God's bliss, doesn't calculate anymore about outer things. So Sri Ramakrishna, the master of examples, in some other place gives another example, which will really clarify this idea, what he's saying. That if your intention is to test the mango, you enter, you go to the mango orchard, two friends enters the mango orchard with an intention to eat mangoes. One of them climbs up the tree and starts eating mango. You know that there are many such orchards where it has been told that you cannot take anything away. You go and eat as much as you want. Uh, because sometimes you know that for harvesting also, it a uh, lot of expense uh, is there. You have to pay them. But the angle, there's all the fruits may get west. So okay, it's free. You go and eat as much as you cannot take away. So such, such a situation you can think of here that one of the friend went and immediately started eating mangoes, and the other was an intellectual, seeing the huge mango orchard. He thought, let me count the number of trees. What a big orchard. How many trees? How many leaves can be there in each of the tree? How many branches? So Ramakrishna is saying that who is the intelligent one? If you have came to eat mangoes, taste the mango. Why to just go on uh, dwelling upon the splendor that how big the mango orchard is, how many trees are there, how many branches are there in each tree, how many leaves. So don't count leaves, eat the mango. So counting leaves is like being engaged in the, in, in being totally uh, involved in the splendor of the divine. You are uh, totally uh, overwhelmed by the splendor, but that can never help you to test the mango, the love, the devotion, the love for the divine by, in, by being in communion with the divine that is possible when you forget the splendor and try to enjoy the bliss which comes from the real devotion. So that's after attaining God, one forgets his external splendor, the glories of his creation. One doesn't think of God's glories after one has seen him. The devotee, once immersed in God's bliss, doesn't calculate anymore about outer things. When I see Narendra, I don't need to ask him, what's your name? Where do you live? Where is the time for such questions? Once a man asked Hanuman, which day of the fortnight it was? Brother, said Hanuman, I don't know anything of the day of the week or the fortnight or the position of the stars. I think of Rama alone. So the more we get identified with the self, the more we 
get immersed in devotion this we go beyond the concept of time space causation it happens even in our day to day life whenever we enter into a state of flow when you are practicing some instrumental music at the beginning your skills doesn't meet the challenge to really learn there's a challenge your skills are not up to it and after a lot of practice as long as you are practicing you don't get the test of playing that music but when the we have missed your skills have met the challenge then you enter into a state of flow you're so absorbed in that in your own playing of the instrument you're so absorbed time passes flows you don't know how much time has passed you forget your this uh, the need to have food you for to have drink that you're tired because all the bi- biological alarm system this all this alarm is not processed by the mind because the entire mind is dwelling in the thing which you really like so what happens though you're in the body you have become videha as if you are without any body because all the bodily feelings has fallen off the concept that time passes you don't know how, how much time has passed so that's the thing which happens when you are you develop intense devotion the moment that when you are in communion with the divine you enter into a state of flow and that takes you as a beyond time space causation so, and that's the thing which is needed for our spiritual evolution the more you can get rid of yourself the more you evolve spiritually because it is the sense of this limited individuality that alone is the cause of bondage as sri ramakrishna used to say when he was asked when shall i be free when i cease to be and the i ceases to be when you can enter into a state of flow and for that devotion devotion is the only means by which you can enter into a state of uninterrupted flow and that's being spoken of here that once a man asked hanuman which day of the fortnight it was brother said hanuman i don't know anything of the day of the week or the fortnight or the position of the stars i think of rama alone when you think of rama alone when that contemplation has enabled you to enter the state of flow everything else falls off you go beyond the concept of time space causation october 16 1882 it was monday a few days before the durga puja the festival of the divine mother sri ramakrishna was in a very happy state of mind for narendra was with him narendra had brought two or three young members of the brahma samaj to the temple garden besides this rakhal <coughs> ramlal hajra and aim were with the master narendra had his midday meal with sri ramakrishna afterwards a temporary bed was made on the floor of the master's room so that the disciples might rest a while a mat was spread over which was placed a quilt covered with a white sheet a few cushions and pillows completed the simple bed like a child the master sat near narendranath on the bed he talked with the devotees in great delight with a radiant smile lighting his face and his eyes fixed on narendra he was 
giving them various spiritual teachings, interspersing these with the incidents from his own life. Master, after I had experienced Samadhi, my mind craved intensely to hear only about God. I would always search for places where they were reciting or explaining the sacred books such as the Bhagavata, the Mahabharata, and the Adhyatma Ramayana. I used to go to Krishna Kishore to hear him read the Adhyatma Ramayana. So what it speaks after experiencing Samadhi. So this is the idea which we find even in the Yoga Shastra. That at present, my mind is distracted, in a distracted state. Sarvartha. With a lot of practice, I develop Ekagrata. For the first time when my mind is Ekagra, it is there for the short time. For the first short time it is concentrated. Again, it breaks into thousands of thoughts. Why it happens? That though I am consciously trying to keep my mind in one thought, my subconscious mind is full of all those vagaries. They pop up. The mind, the conscious mind gets disturbed by two things. All the conscious thoughts and perceptions, by that it gets disturbed. It's like pelting stone on the surface of a pond. The, immediately the water breaks into ripples. All these conscious thoughts are like pelting stones. And the, again, the surface of the pond gets disturbed by the bubbles which are coming from the bottom. There are a lot of bubbles which are coming from the bed of the pond, from the uh, from the the, surf, the bottom surface of the pond. These bubbles are coming up. When they come, when they reach the surface, they break there, and that also disturbs the water, the surface of the water. So the conscious mind gets disturbed by two things. One is all these conscious thoughts, perceptions. And another is the subconscious thoughts, which are like the bubbles. Now my mind is full of all those vagaries. Though I am consciously trying to keep my mind focused, I'm taking a resolution. Let me keep the mind in my ishta. Naturally, it's very obvious that as my subconscious mind is full of all those vagaries, they come up and break my concentration. And what's the way out? Now this uh, conscious attempt is very feeble, very weak compared to the subconscious mind. That's why we find by repeated attempts, we fail again and again. Then is there no way out? There is a way out. That if we know how all those vagaries, thousands of thoughts have entered into the subconscious mind. The only way to go to the subconscious is through the conscious mind. Whatever we think, whatever we do, whatever we perceive is not lost. It immediately goes to the subconscious mind as samskar, and which again comes back as memory. They remain there as latent impressions and they come back as memory, as the bubbles are like the memories. So all these have entered my subconscious mind through the conscious, maybe in some past birth, in past life, or even in the present life. Till now, till now when I have taken the resolution to concentrate. So they are full. Now how this feeble attempt can ever succeed? The same way that even if I am failing, 
to concentrate my mind, but each and every attempt to concentrate my mind is a conscious attempt, which also is going to the subconscious mind. This every failure attempt, though I'm not succeeding, but for the time being, I'm trying to concentrate my mind, maybe just for a fraction of a second, I'm successful. And again, the distraction comes, but this conscious attempt, that small attempt, that has also gone to the subconscious mind because anything which I do in the conscious mind goes to the subconscious. Now slowly, this will start saturating the subconscious mind. This each and every failed attempt, though it is very feeble, it is going and saturating the subconscious and cleaning the subconscious mind from all the vagaries. The example which we gave previously, it's just like a cup, if we just uh, compare our mind with a cup full of turgid water, impure water, full of impurities. It is full to the brim. Now, if you pour pure water into the cup, distilled water into the cup, as it is, bring, it is full to the brim, the turgid water, which uh, was already there, that starts spilling off. It starts spilling off and the pure water goes on diluting the turgidity. So turgidity is reducing gradually. A time will come when all the turgid contents has been washed away and the cup is just full of pure water. So it's a matter of time, but the change is happening. And time comes when the mind is full of pure water. That speaks of your mind is having ikagravitti, that only one thought. The, all the vagaries has gone off. Now when the mind is in one thought, it cannot stay long in one thought because this world is the world of polarity. Wherever there is a flow, there should be polarity. This world in Sanskrit is called samsara. Samsarate iti samsara. Wherever there is a flow, everything is flowing. Why everything is flowing? Because there is polarity. Why water flows? Because there is a difference of level. If both the levels become same, water won't flow. Why the electricity flows? Because there is a difference in potential. If the both ends have same potential, there is no electricity. Magnetism the same. If two north poles are there, they will negate each other. There's no way we are not going to get the, if any iron filing is kept between, it won't be attracted by any of them because one field is negating the other of same strength. So wherever there's a polarity, there is a flow. Why the mind exists? Because it can jump from thought to thought. Mind means jumping from thought to thought. If you if you somehow manage not to jump from thought to thought, keep the mind in ekagravritti for long. It doesn't happen immediately. At the beginning, though my mind may be ekagra, but the frequency, there is a frequency where one thought is coming and after the next thought is coming, there is a little lapse. The more we practice, this lapse reduces. That's why after dhyana comes dharana, then only samadha, samadhi. Dharana speaks of like just to give an example, uh, when you have a picture which has very low resolution, you can see the dots. It doesn't give a sense of a continuous picture. But if the dots are very intense, that they call it high resolution means that you have high DPI, dots per inch. When the dots per inch are immense, 
then you don't see the dots. It looks like a very continuous picture. Similarly, when the mind has for the first time become ekagra, it's like a low resolution mind and no resolution picture. The dots are still visible. The more I become adept in meditation, this DPI, just like the DPI increases, the resolution increases, it gives a sense of continuity. So then that becomes dharana. When that dharana, then what happens? The polarity has been resolved. Same thought. When previously I was thinking A, B, C, D, now it is A without any gap. Now the mind cannot continue. Because as we told, as long as we can jump from thought to thought, then it is the mind. With intense concentration, the mind falls off as if for the time being. There is no thought. That takes you beyond the mind to get established in the self. But now another thing happens. My subconscious mind is now filled with that there's ishtavritti, the thinking of the Lord that which made my mind ekagra, concentrated. That is full. So now this ekagravitti comes and breaks that thoughtless state, nirodha state. So what happens? Now again, the, you come down from the samadhi and now you find again that devotion is welling up. You like to stay with the devotion when you are coming down. So now when we feel that, there's, sometimes we may feel that Ramakrishna throughout the day is just uh, praying to God, uh, taking Lord's name. We see so many people doing it. And what's the difference between Ramakrishna and the so many people who are the novices in the devotional life? The difference is it cannot be found from just by this object objectively. It's a very, very, uh, what is a subjective experience. For the so-called, the majority, the mind is constantly getting distracted. They're somehow trying to concentrate the mind by taking the name of the Lord. And for Ramakrishna, it is again and again going to the Samadhi. From there, it is when coming down, the natural state, he cannot go to the restless state because the mind has already been cleansed. It naturally comes to the state where he likes to hear of the divine. So though both are chanting the name of the Lord, but one is coming down to chant the name of the Lord and other has to go up to chant the, chant the name of the Lord. So there's a difference, though it may look alike, as Swami Vivekananda used to say, that the extreme poles always look alike. We cannot see the ultraviolet light, we cannot see the infrared light. But there's a huge difference. Similarly, Ramakrishna coming down from Samadhi, taking the name of Lord, is something totally different from us sitting and chanting the name of the Lord. When we are chanting, we ourselves can, we know that so many places our mind is going again and again. If you can if you can keep your mind in one of the devotional songs without any distraction, forget about Japa. In Japa, in, uh, when you are repeating the name of the Lord, it is only one name you are trying to repeat. It's quite difficult. In a song, there is some flow of ideas that is easy to keep the mind in the song. But if you have succeeded in doing, in keeping your mind in the song without the mind getting distracted in anything else, know it for certain, it's a great achievement. Uh, you can ask anyone to do that. And you, you have to be sincere, of course. If you just say, no, I have done it, that's a different thing. If, just see it subjectively. Try one day that, okay, today when I'm 
uh, when Khandana song is going on, I will keep my mind only in Khandana, nothing else. If you can do it, know it for certain, you have really succeeded a great deal. You'll find the mind is so uh, that uh, what if this fluid, it, when it has just gone to some other thought, you even don't know. But for Ramakrishna, it's not the case. He goes to the Samadhi, but the natural state will, of the mind is that Ishtavritti. It, when it comes down, it wants to stay there. And that's what he's saying in, about his experience here. After I had experienced Samadhi, my mind craved intensely to hear only about God. I would always search for places where they were reciting or explaining the sacred books, such as the Bhagavata, the Mahabharata, the Adhyatma Ramayana. I used to go to Krishna Kishore to hear him read the Adhyatma Ramayana. So we'll continue with Sri Ramakrishna's own experiences as, in his, as he has narrated in his own words again in the next class. So with this, we stop our discussion today. Thank you all. Namaskars.